Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 30th, 2014. This is episode 1397 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I'm going to continue on yesterday's show with you today. Yesterday I did it all about raising chickens. And uh, the show went two hours. And I realized at the end, not only was it not all about raising chickens, which I accepted there was no way I could do all about raising chickens in two hours, but there was actually a lot of things I I'd planned to include in that show that got left out because it went so long. There was so much I wanted to cover with you yesterday, so I'm going to follow up on it. And you guys have some great questions coming in for a Q&A show about chickens that I'll do in the future. A couple of those might get answered sort of kind of by accident today, uh, but I think that this show will help precipitate some more questions as well. And we'll end up with a great chicken series, two parts and a Q&A to go with it, kind of like we've done with herbs and food forests in the past. But chicken's awesome, man. It's the most, uh, it, it's the easiest pathway towards some level of self-sufficiency, self-reliance of food production in your life, unless you live on a golf course with yuppie assholes. So, I think it's worth covering, and it's kind of crazy that we haven't covered it to this level this far into the walk that is TSP. But before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Berkey Water Filtration Systems, of course. Um, I use a Berkey every day, every single day, and I'll tell you why. We have actually... Um, Totally safe water to drink from our well. You can't find anything wrong with it. You can't find a contaminant in it. It's hard water, but it goes through a softener, comes out the other end, completely safe to drink. No fluoride, no pesticides, no nothing. Uh, no chlorine or chloramine like is in uh, regular water. So why do I use a Berkey? Frankly, my water tastes a hell of a lot better when it comes out of the Berkey than it does when it comes out of the faucet. Plus, I know if anything ever goes wrong, like if there is any kind of contamination of our local water, it'll still be safe. And I know it's here that if we ever need to start purifying water for other from other sources because we're in some kind of a disaster, it'll be here for that and we'll be used to doing it. So I get great tasting water of the highest quality for the most efficient cost per gallon that there is. I have a great looking beautiful system. It's easy to use and it can't fail because it's gravity fed. Why the hell would I use anything else? Why would you use anything else? Let me add to that, why would you use anybody but the Berkey guy when you buy your Berkey? just doesn't make any sense to buy from the non-Berkey guy. He's a maniac at customer service. I just recently was up in West Virginia at Elijah Springs, and Jesse Tegmeyer called in with a question about the Berkey. Jeff called him back in less than an hour, and turned out Jeff was on vacation with his family. That is insane customer service. That's probably in too much customer service. I think most people would understand if you took a day to get back to them while you're on vacation. Not Jeff, man. This guy just takes care of everybody. Check him out today. His website's Directive21, and not just Berkey's. He has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storage foods. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. Silver and gold should be part of your long-term investment strategy. I personally say that it makes sense to have 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. That means you want to buy silver and gold at the right times. Uh, the dollar cost average, you want to buy a little here and a little there. If it goes really, really down, maybe you buy a lot. You want a great, dependable source you know you can count on. You want to pay no more for it than you have to. And if something goes wrong because human beings are involved, 
sooner or later something goes wrong. You want great customer service where the owner of the company cares about you as an individual. I found one place big enough to give you the to give you the pricing uh, with direct access to the president. That was JM Bullion. It's where I buy my silver and gold, and you should too. Please remember, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, JM Bullion, and many of our other sponsors do provide additional discounts to members of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. That's one reason to join. There's a lot of other great reasons to join, like content you'll get nowhere else, over $150 worth of free ebooks. And if you're buying everything from silver and gold to cooking stuff to garden stuff to tactical stuff to practical stuff, hey, if you buy it through the MSB, it'll more than pay for itself. A product that pays for itself and helps support something you love like TSP, it's a no-brainer, so consider joining today. If you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the com. Put service discount in the subject line and tell me in one or two sentences about your service and I'll send you the discount code. Do this before, not after you join. All right, with that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show and start out with the year that was the episode. 1397. We're heading for 1400. I'm just excited about that for some reason, but today I have for you Three to choose from. The awesome Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at TSPWiki.com, the survival, sustainability, and education wiki for the preparedness community. You can not only learn from, but be a contributor to. Check it out today, TSPWiki.com. Uh, today we have Richard and the Barons, Dick Whittington and his cat, Queen Margaret, and the Khmer Union, Kalmar Union. I'm going to read Richard and the Barons. King Richard II of England is deeply worried about the barons with good reason. Years earlier, his uncle Thomas of Woodstock, the first Duke of Gloucester, had organized the nobles and the lords appellant. A legal body formed to restrain the tyrannical actions of the king. They succeeded, and in a violent reaction, many people lost their heads. What the lords failed to do was remove King Richard. They believed they were teaching the king a lesson. But all the king learned was to be more ruthless than ever. This year, the king dissolved the lords appellant and has his uncle Thomas arrested. As Thomas awaits trial, he is murdered by supporters of the king. This will only strengthen the resolve of the nobles and the king's cousin, Henry IV. Henry will come to a decision. Henry will become king, but not until after his father, John of Gaunt, dies. So we see a lot of infighting and struggling amongst the rich and wealthy gangsters of the day. My take by Alex Shrugged on this. Some people force the very thing they fear. If an employer is afraid that his employees will leave, they will notice his nervousness and think there is something wrong with the company. This will update, they will update their resume and start looking for new employment. When I try to hide something, others will notice and think I'm doing something wrong or that I'm protecting something valuable. Perhaps I do have something valuable that I'm protecting, but my fears of losing it bring about the very thing I don't want. People curious about what I'm doing. I, you know, I wouldn't have actually got that from this, but I think Alex is spot on, and I'm going to run with his take a little bit on this. I think a way to look at this that applies, so when we look at history, it's interesting stories, and we get context, and we learn what stupid people did in the past, because we need to accept that those stupid people will, again, do them in the future. But the, the, the fundamental reality here is that we also want things that are directly applicable to our lives. And Alex's extraction of this principle is incredibly valid in the prepper community. So preppers often fear the worst. Now, if you run around fearing that the zombies will come and kill you, you will not bring about the zombies. The zombies are not coming. There are no zombies. They're only on TV in 
B-movies, okay? No zombies are coming. So you'd think that the prepper freaked out about the zombies coming couldn't actually bring into his life the very thing he fears, the zombies. But he doesn't fear the zombie. He fears all the things the zombie represent, like poverty. If you fear being broke, you will be broke. You will find a way to make yourself broke. If you fear being fat, you will be fat. You will find a way to make yourself fat. If you fear being sick, you will find a way to make yourself sick, if only through the stress of worrying about being sick. I, this is a very difficult thing for people to comprehend, and I, I mean this both in a practical, down-to-earth way, the way that Alex is talking about it, and on some levels a universal energetic sense. That which we have an attraction to, we attract, or the law of attraction. Now, this doesn't mean if you sit around and meditate and think of a great big bowl of, of, of gold coins and see a golden light around it and sit there and go, um, that one day you'll come home and there'll be a pot of gold sitting on your table. This is preposterous and it's what's used by hucksters to sell this idea. But remember that hucksters generally take a truth and then twist it to sell an idea. The law of attraction is real. You can see it in the lives of people who live in a positive or a negative way. The woman who lives with a man who beats her and finally gets away from him but doesn't separate herself from her own attachment to this type of treatment soon ends up with another man who beats her. doesn't mean it's her fault. It means that she's in a position where that's the logical end result. And it's usually because of some sort of self-loathing. It's also the case that many people have a, a very difficult time with this concept. It doesn't matter whether your attraction to something is negative or positive, it's still an attraction. So you would think, well, like, you know, if I don't want to be fat, and I'm thinking very much I don't want to be fat, that you're not attracting things that will lead you into dietary temptation and biochemical processes in the body that will respond by taking any tiny excess calorie it can grab it onto it saying this person needs to store up because something bad's going to happen and they need to put as much body fat on as possible so they don't starve you'd think that saying i don't want to be fat would repel fatness it doesn't matter if you're like i want to be fat or i don't want to be fat the energetic response is only fat that's the only it doesn't matter whether you're positive or negative to something you'll attract that which you focus on it's very simple So if you fo and what you actually tend to attract are opportunities, be they negative or positive. And if there's enough opportunities in front of you, sooner or later you take some of them for negative or positive. It doesn't matter. So, and it isn't even so much an attraction, it's an awareness of what shows up. So if you are constantly focused on bettering yourself, the same day, Or, or you're, let's say you have two people. One is constantly focused on bettering themselves. And this is how I'm going to take the hocus-pocus out of this for you, even though I do believe there is still some energetic response. If I'm focused 100% on bettering myself, and then somebody else, person B, is focused 100% on not making things worse, the negative side, we could go through the exact same day, meet the exact same people in the exact same order and hear the exact same words and end up at the exact same place at the end of the day. My awareness will be toward the positive, and their awareness will be toward the negative. So they will, at each point along the pathway, you're given choices, A or B, left or right, focus on this or focus on something else, do this or don't do this. Because the awareness is tuned to the negative, 
all the choices lead toward the negative. Because the focus is on the positive, all the choices lead toward the positive. Which means if you're focused on something that's negative, even by I don't want it, you will, you will see the choices and you will see the impacts toward the negative. And it's happened throughout history. It happens, you know, to the least among us and the greatest among us. We bring about that which we most fear if we focus on that which we fear. That's why I always bring the show toward focusing on self-sufficiency, independence, and liberty. See, I want self-sufficiency, independence, and liberty. That's why I might talk occasionally about tyranny to make people aware of the fact that it exists, but we don't focus on it because I don't want tyranny. I want liberty. So which one do I focus on? I focus on liberty. I, I, I will point out the systematic dependence of the population to the systems of support, but I will focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance for the individual because that's what I want for myself and my audience. That's this lesson from history. Imagine if they taught it that way in school. Now, on to a totally different lesson. Let us come and reason together about the humble chicken and continue on yesterday's discussion. I want to start with something I didn't cover yesterday. And that is, where do you get your little puffball chicks from? Where do you get your chickens? And you pretty much have two choices. You either are going to order chickens from a chicken place, and they will come to you peeping in a little box in the mail. And yes, this is done, and yes, it's perfectly safe and okay to do. Or you will get your chickens locally. Somehow you will go see somebody and purchase chickens. Um, if you're buying chickens the way most people do locally... That means a trip to a feed store or tractor supply or somewhere like that, and you'll, you'll, you'll select from whatever they have available. And usually this will be Rhode Island Reds, White Leghorns, uh, Sex Link Pullets, uh, and, and a variety of Bantams is, is what I generally see, uh, and maybe some other breeds, but generally not a huge variety to pick from. Uh, so if you want certain breeds, then generally going to a hatchery like Cackle Hatchery or Efal or McMurray Hatchery gives you a lot more to select from. And if you just want a multi-species flock, let's say you want a pretty big flock, you want a dozen hens, and you want a few roosters to select from, well, you can probably go and just get a, a random assortment, and they'll just grab whatever they have for you. Or you can say, I want two of these, two of these, two of these, two of these, two of these. Not going to happen usually with buying from a local store. The other way that you can buy locally is to find local chicken keepers and buy chickens. And this opens up a whole new realm of opportunity because let's say you want to get into eggs fast. Well, it's, it's very possible that you can find somebody that will sell you six-week or 12-week-old birds that are, you know, if they're 12-week-old birds, they may start laying in a couple weeks, but they're at, at most four weeks away from starting to lay for you, four to, four to six weeks. And you're not going to have much mortality, and those birds are kind of in that stage where they're still young enough that they become associated with you and affiliated with you, and you're forming a local connection. And that means that you may have a really great place to go back and get more birds when you need more birds. And you may not have to get them only at the spring when Tractor Supply and these other places have them. So when you're buying locally, the biggest limitation to me is the number of breeds you can select from and when you can get birds. And you're almost always getting day-old chickens if you're buying from a store. If you buy from a local person that owns chickens, well, 
you get a lot more choice in, in a lot more ways, including age of chickens and things like that. Some people will balk at somebody saying, well, um, this chicken is going to start laying in a couple weeks and I want 15, 18 bucks for it. Uh, you probably have $9 of feed to $10 of feed into that bird by the time it's that old. Plus all the man hours and dealing with some of the other stuff we're going to talk about today, like brooding. and There's a lot of work to raising a baby chicken. It really is. They're much easier to deal with once they're half grown. At that point, they, they kind of look after themselves. But when they're little, they kind of try to kill themselves in, in a lot of ways. So you have to look after them quite a bit more. They're a lot more likely to fall over from heat or to die from being cold and wet. So I don't see the problem with paying more for a bird that's come further along, just like you would pay more for a two-year-old versus a one-year-old tree because somebody had to take care of it for that year. Somebody had to feed it for that year. Somebody had to provide for it. Um, so there's kind of some help in making your decisions. I have no problem ordering chickens. I think a lot of people are afraid to order chickens, like they're going to come in the mail. What's going to happen to them? This is what happens. At the hatchery, That little bird fights his way through a really tough shell and pops out of the egg. And he's a wet little mess that can barely move. And like an hour later, in the incubator, in the right temperatures that the catcheries run them off, he's a little fluffy puffball. And he's up and he's moving around and peeping and he's doing his thing. A giant hand comes in and grabs his ass. And within that day, he's in a box with some buddies going peep, 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 and he's on his way either to your house or, more likely, your local post office where you'll have to go pick him up. That bird has no need to eat or drink for, for about 24 to 48 hours. So he'll be there, he'll be two days old at that point, and you go pick him up. You bring him home, you put him in a brooder, you get him some food and water, they'll go right on the food and water, and I have never yet had a chicken or any bird that I've ordered in the mail show up in the box dead, injured, or sick. Doesn't mean it can't happen, I'm just saying it's worked out very, very well. The fact that you can get birds at different times of the year and time things more to your own um, and get more selection of breed, variety, etc., to me makes ordering chickens a hell of a lot better than buying them from Tractor Supply. Though I would never fault anybody for doing that, I have birds I bought from Tractor Supply. And, and they're good birds. Okay, There is something called Tractor Supply Disease. I've not experienced it with chickens. I have with ducks. I bought a dozen ducks, eight died. And I said, ducks must be fragile. So I bought 22 ducks from a hatchery that mailed them directly to me. Uh, and now I have 26 ducks because none of them died. They're like little Mack trucks. So tractor supply disease can be a real thing. And it's from so many people coming and wanting to hold things and touching and moving things around. And it's just not the best environment for a bird. But my chickens from there have been bulletproof. They've been absolutely, the birds I've lost have like killed themselves in a bucket, which they can do, or gone over a fence and got eaten by a fox or something like that. Uh, I haven't lost birds due to illness at all. So I don't think there's a problem with it. And if all you want are some Rhode Island Reds or some Sex Links or something like that, and you're willing to wait till spring, you go down to track your supplier, your local feed store that sells chicks, they're probably going to have them. So there's nothing wrong with it. And a Rhode Island Red is a great bird. Um, and uh, the, the production sex link, uh, uh, red sex links, gold sex links, black sex links, those birds, they are very good for egg production. So if you want that, no reason not to buy there. If you want something else, don't be afraid to order birds is my point. Next, if you get babies, you're going to need a brooder. Okay, So 
If the baby was born under mom, she would brood it. She would take care of things, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But you've now ordered a baby. The mom is somewhere crapping out eggs for the hatchery to make the hatchery more money. And she's in Missouri, and you're in Florida. So she can't do the job now. Or you've incubated your own eggs, same situation. Mom's outside in the coop. Little baby puffball wasn't born under mom. Mom's not going to protect it. The other chickens will pick on it, kill it, and eat it. Yes, they'll eat them. So you have to now do the job of mom. The things that a brooder needs to be. Warm, dry, clean, constant access to water, and food. With the ability for the bird to do what? What's the big fancy sounding word we talked about yesterday? Thermoregulate. Thermoregulate. Which means to regulate its temperature. Okay? So that means you need a brooding lamp. This is a warm, hot lamp. In winter, or early spring, or late fall, if I'm brooding chickens out in my shed, which I do, in that lamp goes a typical heat light bulb. It's very, very hot. It will burn your hand. The, the, the light fixture it comes with comes with a guard, so you don't burn your hand. I have some stuff put up where I can clip it on, and it, sh it shines down into the brooder. For a brooder, I use a stainless steel stock tank or a poly stock tank, either one, and I put screens over it after the birds are just a couple days old because it doesn't take them long before they can get out. They can get out and they get into trouble or they get themselves killed. All right, so that lamp sits there. That lamp should be on one side of the brooder. That lamp should form an umbra, which is a fancy way of saying a funnel, so that it's warm in the center and it gets cooler as they go out to the sides. And the way you know if you've got your birds happy, if they are all huddled into a tight little mass constantly at the very center of that umbra, it's probably too cold because they're trying to get every bit of heat they can. If they're kind of spaced out in like a circle or to one side at the edge of that most of the time when they're resting, then you've got it right. That means they've they found this place that's, oh, this is just right, right? It's the Goldilocks zone. This is a little too warm here in the center to sit here, and this is a little too cold. There it is. This is where I like to be. You've got it pretty good. You don't overstress this, but it's, it's definitely possible. I will say that when we, if we do brew chickens when it's warm out, you know, I'm talking hitting 90 degrees, I still put a, 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 a brooder lamp in there, but I put a regular light bulb in that doesn't throw anywhere near as much heat because in my climate, it can, it can make the whole thing too hot. I mean, if it's 90 degrees and you're throwing a red freaking thermal light bulb down, you can create 110 degree heat. And I can warm up the whole damn brooder. And So I try not to brood during that time. But if I had to, I would go to a less intense heat source. And you might even, once your birds are like a week old, turn that damn thing off during the middle of the day. They're not going to freeze to death. They're just not. Think about it. They didn't freeze to death in the box on the way to you. All right? So in the mail. So that's how I set up my brooder. I put my water and my feed on the cool side of the brooder so they can come over and eat and go back over. And that way they're not climbing all over it and crapping all over it. And I would say more toward the center of the brooder is I put my water and feed. I've tried hanging the water so that they can't get in it and mess it up. It It's never worked really well. I've gone to small chick waters. That way if they do spill, there's only so much water that can be spilled. And I usually fill them like halfway. And then I give them, you know, I go out once a day and change their water out. And and chickens will poop in the water a little bit, but if you've got a small water, they can only do so much damage once. 
I get to a point where they're draining that water and they're not spilling it because they're just drinking more as they get bigger, I go to a full-size water and I put that in their brooder and I put a couple 2x4s underneath it. That lifts it a couple inches, well, an inch and a half off the ground. Okay? And I set it on there and I make the 2x4 blocks smaller than the outside of the water so it's like it's hanging. If that makes sense. It's, it's, it's above the ground, so they have to stand and drink it. It's not as easy for them to get in it and poop it up. For litter in my brooder, everybody says to use wood chips. Most people do use wood chips. I have lots of straw around all the time, so I use straw. It's, it's what I use in my chicken house. It's worked fine. I think you could use either one. Do not use cedar. It's bad for birds' skin. There's things in cedar that repel insects. And those same chemicals, reptiles and birds, if it gets into their skin, it's very irritable for them. I have seen people use some cedar as bedding in hen houses without a lot of problems. I'm not comfortable doing it. If it, if it works, I guess it works, but I, I'm just not, my knowledge of reptiles and the common lineage of birds and reptiles and what can happen with skin conditions with cedar, I will not recommend it and I won't sanction it. I'll just say it that way. Um, it's not that you have to be worried if you have cedar outside, like as a mulch somewhere, if your birds go near it. It's not going to be a problem. But contained in a brooder for babies is terrible. And to me, contained in a house or a run for chickens is not acceptable. Cedar has other uses. Um, but any neutral wood um, or straw or hay has always worked well for me. And I've just, I've just gone to where straw works. And your brooder should be cleaned out daily. I will confess to you that especially if I'm brooding like a half a dozen babies, if they haven't spilled their water and made everything wet, I probably clean my brooder out once every other day. And I don't have any problems. I will often do kind of a two-day deep litter cycle where I'll just sprinkle some more straw down if they pooped it up a bit, but it's not that bad. The conventional wisdom is chicks go in a brooder for three weeks and then they can go outside. I have routinely taken my birds in the brooder for two weeks and then put them into a tractor and then brooded them at night. And I usually actually brood them, if you want to look at it that way, for four weeks. On the fourth week, they start staying outside in their chicken tractor. For brooding my chickens, I have a small chicken tractor. It's about four feet wide by seven and a half feet long because the stud lumber I built it out of is seven and a half feet long. That's the reason for the length. I, I built a box with an open top and an open bottom, and I put one quarter inch hardware uh, wire cloth all the way around it. And on top of it, I set pallets. It's that simple. And it works great for them. I have a centerpiece going across it, two strings hanging down. I can hang a waterer and a feeder in the center, and I can hang the water and the feeder high enough as the chicks grow that they can just barely reach in there to eat it. That makes them spill less, and it actually gives them enough space that a lot of times you see them go up underneath there uh, because bugs crawl under there. They just want to be underneath there because they feel safe. I usually take a U.S. Army shelter half tarp. I have several of these. They're cheap. They are bulletproof, tough, and widely available. I use them for a lot of things. I will take the one half of the chicken tractor, and I will put over top of that um, pallet, and I will drape it over there. If the sun is really bad and hot, 
I will tuck it under the sides and leave the end open so you have a three-sided cover. That way, as the sun angle changes, there's always shade there. If the sun's not bad or the bird's in some relative shade, I'll just tuck it under the, the pallet so it's just covers from above. If it's going to rain or something like that, and I don't want to take their food away from them, I'll go outside, I'll disconnect the feeder, and I'll set it on the ground underneath the tarp. Then I don't waste my food. See how simple that is? It's simple, it's cheap, and it works. And that's what you need to do. Sometimes I'll cover the end if it's cool out, but I don't like to cover the end because it lets a breeze come through vertically end to end. Try to put your birds in warmer times of the year when you're doing this with them somewhere where in the afternoon, when, it, when it's at the hottest time of the day and the temperature's built up the most, that that's when they're in shade. When I put them out with this man-made shade thing in the mornings and it's cool out, because I like to do this in the spring and the fall are my two times to do this. When you do that, what you'll see is the sun coming up in the east. Put the uncovered side to the east. Okay, This way you won't have to, to change it in the, in the afternoon because it'll be shaded on the, on the west side. right? But you'll see all of them with their little butts over there in the sun in the morning, like, yeah, puffing up and getting that sun because they want to be warm. And then as it gets hotter in the day, they'll move into the shade. Okay, so that's how I brood them. When they get to a point where that chicken tractor is too small, but they're not big enough yet that I'm comfortable putting them in with the bigger chickens, I now use five foot tall, eight foot long hog panels. Not the 16-footers, eight-footers. They're easy to move. I tie-wrap chicken wire to them, small chicken wire the babies can't get through, or, or, or nylon fencing, Just simple tie wraps and tie wraps so they can't get through. And I put the, the, the part you're tie wrapping goes to the outside, or actually to the inside. So if they try to push it, they can't make a gap because they're pushing against the panel. And I use tie wraps that are reusable. The tie wraps with a little lever. And you could tie wrap. So the first, when they first come out of the 4x8, I put them in an 8x8 square. Four of those panels in an 8x8 square. Two people can pick it up and move it easy. I tie wrap them together, they go in there, it's a long time before they can fly out of that. And they have twice the area now. And if I, every time I want them to be bigger, I just add another panel. And if I need to go inside, I disconnect the, uh, the tie wraps, and I go in there. The easiest, cheapest, simplest mobile coop that I've come up when they're in this stage with is a dog kennel. Most people that own chickens probably have a dog. You probably have a dog kennel. If you're not using the dog kennel, stick it out there. Put a couple sticks through the slots in it for perches. Cover the bottom with straw or wood chips. And that starts teaching them at night, go inside. At night, I go outside and I close the door. In the morning, I go out and I open the door. This is training them that when they get put into a coop later, that at night we go inside something to protect ourselves. And then when I want to go move the panels in the morning, instead of worrying about crushing chickens, I just go out there and drag the apparatus to the next spot and shove the chickens that are all peeping now inside the dog kennel wanting to come out. When I get them where I want, I open the door. That way I can, I, I can do that at night after they go in, if I feel like it, or I can do it in the morning when, I, when I go to move it. And that way I can move them every day without worrying about escapes and without hurting anybody. About the time they start flying up on the top and getting out, I start selecting them and pulling them out and clipping those flight feathers off, and they're still going to probably get out on you some. The nice thing is if you're going with just an 8x8, and if you have a bigger flock, you can split them and do two of these. You can drape something over the top of that. 8x8's not that big. You can put a net over that or something like that if you want to, to keep them in there. Or you can just split them up and keep them in you know conventional tractors that are easy to move. 
All right, so that's how I take the brooding through that adolescent stage where they're not quite big enough to go into an existing flock. Existing flock introduction, everybody I've talked to does this, and everybody says it's the best way. You wait till it's dark, and it's time for the baby chickens to go be with the adult chickens. And you put them in the coop, in the dark, when everybody's asleep. They wake up together, I, and, and they have a bird brain. They're like, oh, I guess you were always, I don't like you. You're, you're a competitor for food, and you're smaller than me, so I'm going to chase you around. But in general, I guess you belong here because I woke up and you were here. Huh. Okay, that's the new world. And everybody starts to, and you'll find your new group will stick together. Or if it's a big group, they'll stick in four or five little groups together. And you'll, you'll be able to look and go, okay, there's my existing birds, there's my babies. Even as they get larger, where it's a little harder to just look at them and visually tell them apart, you'll see these little groups of chickens that kind of hang out with each other. And it's, that's as simple as it is with introducing them to a new flock. Incubation of your own eggs. A chicken takes 21 days to incubate. And this is what you need to know about a chicken egg. Um, it needs to be about 99.5 degrees. It needs a decent humidity. If it dries out, basically the egg will cook. Um, it needs to be turned at least three times a day. And you don't want to monitor all that crap with a cheap hover baiter. You can do it, but it's a pain in the ass, and I've talked to more than one person that's tried it and failed with it. I used the Styrofoam hover baiter incubator a long time as a reptile breeder. For breeding snakes or lizard eggs, it works perfectly. It takes a long time fiddling with it to get the temperature right. Once you get the temperature set where you want it, And I recommend if you're going to use this thing, get yourself a little digital thermometer and attach it where you can look through the window and see it. Don't use that little crappy one they give you with it. And once you get it dialed in, man, it'll hold. The problem is the moisture. And if you're going to use the hovabator, get the little egg turner that you can buy for it. It just rocks them back and forth several times a day. But then you also have to deal with humidity. So it doesn't come with a, humidif uh, a, a, a humidifier gauge, right? Uh, uh, what I'm looking for. The gauge tells you what the humidity is. I'm not going to try to remember right now. So you want to keep that humidity where it belongs. And then right before they hatch, you want to increase that humidity. And in all of this, is in, in, in incubating mild chickens, I found an incubator called the Incubu. It turns the egg six times a day. If you, do, if you just turn it on, plug it in, and leave it the way it comes, it turns the egg six times a day. It keeps the temperature at exactly where it belongs. And all you do to keep the humidity up is dump water in it. it on the humidifier, it has multiple zones. It says too dry, incubation, there's kind of a center spot that's okay for anything, and then there's a side that says hatching period. And all you do is look at it once or twice a day, and if it's starting to get low, you add water to it, And during the hatching period, you add enough water to it that it stays up where it says hatching period. And it does everything for you in 21 days, chickens pop out. So for the home incubator person that has the budget of about 180 bucks, it is the best incubator I have found. If I were Stephen Harris, I would say it's Harris approved. Since I'm not, I'll say it's Spearco approved. I think that a lot of times when somebody looks at something like that, I want to incubate a dozen a year, I could just buy them. Either make that economic decision or get with other chicken people that want to incubate birds and buy one collectively and timeshare it. Um, if you're going to be long-term running a farmstead or homestead and long-term incubating eggs, I think it's just a no-brainer. Okay, And I think that in a minute I'm going to talk about what to do with a chicken when you cull it, and you'll find that raising 40 or 50 birds a year, the way I just described, and introducing them to your flock and culling out roosters will result in a pretty good meat yield. 
without a lot of time spent, with a lot of good eating, they won't be big, giant broilers. They won't be a huge ROI. But since you have zero dollars in producing them, and all you're going to do is feed them, and you're going to pasture them so they get some of their nutrient that way, and you're going to feed them scraps and stuff like that, and you're going to use them for composting and all these other things, they're going to grow the chicken for less money than just growing it on grain alone, that they'll be a, a, a well you know, a well-earned piece of meat, uh, labor-wise. But cost-wise, they'll be pretty low, and they'll be pretty good eating. Okay? So that's that's why I think this is a good investment for someone that's going to incubate. If you're going to incubate birds every year, even if it's only a few dozen every year, I, ha I have yet, if I had found a better incubator, I would have purchased it. I'll leave it at that. Okay, so now I want to talk about what the geese taught me about brooding chickens. Um... <clears throat> If you don't have to brood your chickens, don't. If you can get a hen to go broody and put a whole bunch of eggs under her and get her to take care of her eggs and hatch her babies, do that. That's the way to do it. Put them under a bird and let her do it. If you can get two broody hens, you can probably hatch 18 birds under each, each hen. She'll do a better job than you, and all the work you're going to have to do is the work you were doing for your flock anyway. You'll never have to worry about introducing them. She's going to take care of her babies. The flock's going to accept them because they were hatched there. You're not going to have hardly any problems at all, and you're not going to do any freaking work. It's the way to be. If you have a flock and none of your birds seem to want to go broody, there are some breeds of bantams. Just type to go to Google, type in broody bantam breeds, and you'll find some bantam chickens that do a really good job of going broody for you. There are certain breeds that tend to go broody over time. Buff Orpington, that's one of the reasons they were added to my flock. They're very noted for going broody. Uh, Astrolorps tend to go broody occasionally. Rhode Island Reds, they've been with, you know, they've been an egg producer for so long, they're just not really considered a broody breed. They don't just tend to go broody. But bantams tend to go broody like crazy. Your bantam is a little bit of a money sink. She is gonna eat almost as much feed as a full-size bird, and she's gonna lay little eggs. Okay? But she'll, she'll brood any egg. She doesn't care. So you can take her little eggs away and give her big eggs, and she'll sit on them, and she'll take care of them. And, again, remember I talked about the rooster not being a money sink yesterday? Yes, the rooster eats food, and he produces no eggs. And, you know, eventually you end up with a bigger, a bigger bird than your other birds that you have to cull out, and it's kind of tough. So he's been a money sink in the minds of many people. But he looks after your girls. He takes care of them. He keeps the flock organized. He keeps the structure right. He protects them from predators. A rooster will give its life trying to defend its flock. And, and you know, when you look at that, that's, that's costing you 40 cents a day. There's no other creature that will perform that function for 40 cents a day. All it takes is one 12-week period of your life moving chickens every day that you could have not moved And to, to look at that little bantam hen and go, here's all the food you want, girl. Thank you for what you've done. You, that's what the geese taught me. Because the geese, I went through all this crap. I successfully hatched two eggs. One was a mute and I had to kill. Now that one that made it is a problem. He's living with the ducks. He won't be introduced to the geese. The geese, um, I put, when she finally went broody, I put eight eggs under her. She got four out of eight. I got one out of 12. All right? She did better than me. I have done nothing. One of the baby geese disappeared. We don't know what happened to it. 
Uh, it was pretty young, yet it was in kind of that ugly duckling stage when it disappeared. The other three are fine. The geese have raised them perfectly. I have done no work at all. That has taught me to let your chickens raise your other chickens if you can, the way God intended it. All right, That's why God made chickens lay eggs and know how to incubate them. Now, let's talk a little bit about either way when it comes to incubation. If your bird goes broody, okay, now's the time to understand that you've got to move quick with getting eggs under her. But you probably want 10 eggs, a dozen eggs, or something like that under her, and you want them all to start at the same time. So, And you do the same thing with an incubator sitting on your table if you're doing this yourself. Start collecting eggs every day. If you're selecting certain eggs because you know, like, this bird lays a dark egg and I want this bird's babies or this bird lays a white egg, fine. But get the quantity as quickly as possible. Simply go in your kitchen and set them, set a towel on your shelf. Put them somewhere where you'll see them every day. This will make you not forget to do what you need to do. Set them on the towel at room temperature. Every day, turn them twice at least. This is not absolutely necessary because they're not developing yet, but it's better. Just gently turn them, quarter to a half a turn, and just keep doing that. When you get the quantity you want, go out to your little bantam, and if she's sitting on her own eggs, pick her up, take her eggs away if you don't want any of her babies, and you probably don't because they're going to be out of sync here. Take the eggs you've picked and put them back in her nest and set her little butt back in there. Make sure she's not molested by the other birds. It's great if you can kind of put her in a separate area. Make sure she has very, very close access to food and water. She's not going to eat much. She probably will drink quite a bit as long as the water is where she can either get it from the nest or get it by just moving a little bit. Because she's going to get up every day multiple times to turn the eggs so you don't have to. When she gets up, she'll probably drink. The water's the most important thing. Don't freak out that she's not eating much. She's in this very low-key motherly state. That's what she's going to do. She's going to lose weight. It's okay. That's what birds do. When they hatch, they'll all hatch within about 24 hours of each other. They'll all be very close to each other in development. She'll start taking them out and doing what she needs to do with them when they're ready to go. You don't have to do anything. If they're in an incubator, all you do is save them on the counter When you're ready, you put them all in and start them at the same time. The generally accepted shelf life for eggs at room temperature is 10 days. I try to keep it to 7 to 8 days, but I wouldn't fault you for 10. After 10, you start having more and morbidity. Okay? Um, and that's, that's all there is to it. And will the egg late on Monday develop a little bit maybe at room temperature and slightly hatch before the egg laid on Friday when you put them all in the incubator. Yeah, but you're talking hours. Um, running a cycle, I had all my birds hatch. They started one day, and they ended about middle of the next day, and they were all out when I did it this way. right? There was another group I did where I just kept putting eggs in as I got them because I didn't know what I was doing, and I ended up with birds hatching every single day. But the reality is it's like a recipe. 21 days incubation, bird comes out every single time, you know, if it's going to make it. That's all there is to incubating. Um, the next thing is I had quite a few questions already about roosters that are aggressive. How do I raise a tame, calm rooster? Okay, the first thing we need to understand about a rooster is his job and his little bird brain mind is two things. Keep other roosters from taking my girls and breeding my girls and protect my girls. Those are the only two things that his, his little mind is, is wrapped up in. Taking care of himself, make sure he eats and drinks and stuff like that and finds food, but it's really 
take care of my girls and defend my girls from other roosters who would take them away from me. This is my harem. Right? That's why I named the damn bird Upgrade like a pimp. Right? So that's how they think. So you have to understand how this bird thinks. Now, what this tells you, see, when I teach people how to deal with snakes, and they say, well, what about a snake that bites? There's only two reasons a snake bites. A snake will bite. Only two. There is no third reason a snake will bite you. The snake either believes that you're a threat and the bite is defensive, or the snake, by, by motion or scent or something, is confused and the bite is a feeding response. So it's either, it either thinks your hand's a mouse because you were stupid and handled a bunch of mice and the snake can't see well because it's getting ready to molt or it's in the dark or whatever and it smells mouse and, and senses warmth and bites your hand and clamps onto it and goes, I got a mouse. Or it's like, holy crap, this giant thing's going to kill and eat me. I have to bite it so I can get away. Right? So if we understand that with snakes, then we know how to deal with a snake. So now you have to ask, what are the only two reasons a rooster would attack you? Well, he's mean. Chickens? are not mean the way we mean that when we say it. No pun intended, okay? When we say mean, we're talking about a person that's just an asshole that hates other people and would do cruel, mean things to be mean. The chicken's brain is a, literally about the size of a pea. He does not have the capacity to be a psychopath. He doesn't have the capacity to plot out, when that bastard comes out here, I'm going to spur and bite him. Doesn't have it. What are his two functions? Protect his girls from a threat and keep other roosters from taking his girls away. The only reason a rooster therefore will attack you, he either perceives that you're a threat to the flock, you will harm them, or you're another rooster and you're going to take them away from him. Those are the only two reasons. The best thing to do is start out with your rooster as a chick. Spend a lot of time handling him when he's a little puffball. Teach him to eat out of your hand when he's a little puffball as you're selecting roosters. And that means do this with all your birds if you don't know what you got when they come out. Or if you buy birds and you know you've got this, this group of... And I would say, if you really want a great rooster, get more than one rooster and be prepared to call out the non-selected roosters. But do as much touching, handling, taming with that bird you can while he's little. Spend time with him. Teach birds to eat from your hand. Okay? That says, this thing brings me food. Right there, it's not a threat. And already in the rooster's little pea brain, you are not another rooster. A rooster, as I talked about yesterday, will offer food to a hen. If you watch birds, you see it all the time. Yesterday, we had some leftover bread that we picked up cheap, and we, we occasionally give them some bread as a treat. I was out there throwing bread to the birds, and I was doing it because we had put the new babies in, and I threw them like a whole loaf. It's not good for them, I know, but it was like I was creating this. Uh, there's so much food, we don't need to fight. The, we felt, filled alder feeders, we're giving them treats, I threw sunflower. I mean, I just put food everywhere yesterday, which is a great way to make everybody not be competitive. So I'm throwing bread at Upgrade. I'm hitting him in the chest with it. And he's pecking out a little bit, and he every single hen that came up, he backed off and let him have it. So a rooster will give a hen bread. A rooster will not give another rooster bread or a grasshopper or anything else. If you're feeding the rooster, if you're offering him food, you're saying, I'm not a rooster. Now, what that means is you will get roosters occasionally aggressive towards you anyway, even though you've done all this. At the top, keep feed out by your coop. If he gets aggressive with you, offer him food when he's being aggressive. The natural response is, I'll kick your ass, get off me, and you 
You boot him. Okay? Now, he's in a delusionary state. That's a big rooster coming to take my girls. Okay? What does one rooster do when another rooster comes after him? He either runs away, okay, or fights back. If you do either one, you reinforce his delusion. So when you kick him, if you have a fight with a five-pound bird, you will win. There's no doubt you can kick his ass. But now in his brain, you've reinforced that big thing is another rooster or that big thing is a predator that's going to hurt my girls. Either way, I have to fight it. If you give him food, he's like, huh, I'm going to eat the food or I'm going to make a noise and let my girls have the food. But either way, that thing doesn't hurt me. So that's, that's the number one way to disarm a rooster. But never run from them and never kick them. Now, I cannot say that I haven't had a rooster get a little bit aggressive and kind of pushed them out of the way. I'll get down at their level, and when they come out, I'll, I'll, I'll shove them back. But it's really not the way to be. The other thing, again, multiple roosters. And when you have an aggressive one, whether it's aggressive toward the other birds excessively or it's aggressive towards you excessively, it gets to hang from a tree and it gets to become meat. And that way you can select the rooster with the mildest predisposition in dealing with human beings. You do not want a wussy rooster, though. You do not want, people say, I want a non-aggressive rooster. No, that's not what you want. You want a rooster that's not aggressive toward the flock and not aggressive towards you. You want a mean-ass rooster when it's called for. You want a rooster that goes, that thing is bad. And you want it to take its knives, which are its spurs, and attack it. You want it to just get up and like that when it sees a bird in the air that looks like it might be a hawk. Like, come on, I'm gonna because that hawk actually, if it's a great big rooster, and that's part of why they have all these big feathers that make them look bigger than they are. That hawk's looking down there, going, "That's not the little bird I'm looking for." That thing looks like it wants to fight. That doesn't mean that some bigger hawks won't take him out, but it does mean a lot of your smaller hawks, like your Cooper hawks, and all go, "Yeah, that's not the easy pickings I thought it was. I'm gonna go elsewhere." And you want that rooster just ready to fight. You just don't want him to fight you. So you reinforce that you're the caregiver, the ally with food. That's the number one way to do it. The other thing I've seen work with roosters that are somewhat aggressive, snatch them up off the ground and hold them. Paternal behavior. So now I've got you held, and they just kind of calm down. Stroke, pet, set them back down. I mean, that's, that's what I've seen. Um, you know, I have right now two Rhode Island red cockerels, and I had two of the crossbreed uh, white leghorn Rhode Island red cockerels, and one of the crossbreeds went yesterday. He's going to be cooked today. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do with him uh, here in a minute. A great recipe from the French who know a little bit about cooking. But last night when I was out there, one of the two Rhode Island red cockerels bit me in the leg. didn't hurt, but he attacked me. He was like, yeah. I um, looked at him and I went, dude, again, I don't have room for this many roosters. I don't know if I'm keeping both of you guys or not, but if I keep one of you, you, you just kind of put a demerit on yourself right there. So don't be afraid to get multiple roosters and call out the aggressive ones that are aggressive, again, towards you. But again, you don't want a wussy rooster. You want a tough, mean rooster. You just want him to put his aggression in the right direction. Uh, moving on. So at some point, you have chickens that are too old to produce eggs anymore, or you have surplus roosters, and they must be graduated into meat. I'm going to tell you how I slaughter a chicken. I'm going to do it fast because I've done this before, and most of you have heard it. I do not use cones, and the reason I decided not to use cones is when I was teaching people, 
I thought to myself, in my audience, I wonder how many people have chicken killing cones. And I thought, I bet very few do. So I had a class of 25 people. I said, who here owns cones for killing chickens? And, and two hands went up. So that meant the other 23 did not. I said, who here has a five-gallon bucket? Every single hand went up. That meant everybody has a five-gallon bucket. And I bet you, dear listener, have a five-gallon bucket. I said, who has string? Every hand went up. Okay. I said, who has a sharp knife? Most hands went up. I said, you are hereby being notified of the following. If you are going to slaughter chickens, you are an evil piece of garbage if you do not maintain a sharp knife. I mean razor sharp that will cut hair. Anything less, you should not be killing a chicken with it. You have an oblig a moral obligation, in my opinion, to get a sharp knife. I don't care if you don't know how to sharpen knives, and you have to buy a new knife every time you slaughter. I don't care if it's not as sharp as a razor blade. Don't do it. By the way, there's no reason you couldn't get a razor knife, the kind, the big-handled one that you push the standard razor blade out and use that. It would work fine. Here's why, though. If you've ever cut yourself with a dull knife, it hurts. If you've ever sliced yourself quickly by accident with a razor knife, you're not happy about it, you might be getting stitches, but the cut generally doesn't hurt. I think if we're going to take the life of something that we have chosen to bring into our lives, it is incumbent upon us to do it as humanely as possible with as little pain as possible. There's two reasons. There's a morality issue, in my opinion, but there's also a quality of meat. The less stress that animal's under when it dies, the less stress hormones it will put through its body, the less tough the meat will be and the better tasting the meat will be. This has been proven over and over again. So I'm going to just say that one more time. Your knife should shave hair. You should not be killing a bird with it. You really shouldn't. I am totally opposed. I'm not going to put you down for it because I do believe the death is quick. Okay, and I don't think it hurts the bird, but I, but I think the quality of the meat suffers immensely. I am totally opposed to the chicken head going on a block and <laughs> cutting the head off. Totally opposed to that. Letting the chicken run around. It's just a mess. It's wasteful, and I don't think you get the best quality product from it. If that's the only way you could do it, because that's the only thing you can bring yourself to do, fine. But I would, I would stress that slitting the, the, the veins and arteries in the neck is the best way to do it. If you put them in a cone and do it, I don't have a problem with it. It's just not what I do. I take two pieces of string, usually paracord. I hang them from a tree side by side about six inches apart. I tie a loop in the end of each of them so you can make a simple slip noose. I hang them low enough that a chicken hanging, if you put a five-gallon bucket under there and you put the chicken in the bucket while it's hanging, its head's a couple inches off the bottom of the bucket. I put a layer of wood chips or straw on the bottom of the bucket. I take my chicken... I hold him upside down until he completely calms down. I put the slip knots one over each foot, and I set my chicken in the bucket in the darkness. I leave him hang there for about 30 seconds to a minute. While that bird hangs there, his blood's rushing to his head, he's in darkness, he calms down, he goes into an almost trance-like state. Okay, You don't have to do all this. You can stick him in a thing, uh, a killing cone, and, and cut their neck. It's okay. It really is, but this is what I do, especially when I'm doing one or four, and I have plenty of time to do it. I then I get down on like down like toward kind of on one knee or squatting position. I pull the bird out of the bucket. I hold the head in my left hand, and I pull the bird till it's almost horizontal to the ground. So there's some stress against its leg. I don't hurt the bird. I just put a little bit of stress. The neck is pulling just a little bit. I put a little bit of a almost like a chokehold with my thumb and my forefinger 
right at where you can feel the bones of the chicken's head to where his veins and arteries are. And I put a little bit of pressure there, and then I take my, I, I kind of take those fingers and I kind of palpate. And I take my thumb in my right hand and my index finger in my right hand, and up on the neck, I palpate that as well. So I'm rubbing the veins and the arteries. What almost, not every time, but what almost always happens is all of a sudden that chicken's eye just rolls back in his head, or her head, depending on whether it's a chicken or a rooster. I reach back to my sheath, I pull my knife out, I pull the, you pull the, now the feathers can really stop a knife. So the feathers all lay down toward, from the head to the tail. It's like a scale on a fish. Or a reptile. Again, common ancestry. I take my thumb and I pull the feathers up so I'm getting underneath the feathers so you're not cutting through feathers. And you can see the, the skin of the neck. And I draw the knife across the neck. And I, at the same time, I've pulled the feathers with my forefinger. And this is where you. a lot of people say cut one side. I find I get a better result cutting two. But damn, be careful because you've got a very sharp knife. You don't cut yourself. I usually come across the top and I turn the knife over and I come across the bottom. And my two cuts are this fast. Cut, cut. Please be careful you don't cut yourself. Okay? I cut hard enough to get in, but if I start to feel the knife dragging across the bone, I back off just a little bit, but I draw the knife in a full slice from the bottom of the blade to the top of the blade, bottom of the blade to the top of the blade. I then put the chicken in the bucket, and as I do that, I turn the neck a little bit to help open it up and get the blood flow going. I set the chicken in the bucket. 25% of the time... When I do this this way, and I actually think that I can master this and get it higher, the bird never moves again. The first time it happened, it freaked me out. Because I've always seen birds at the end do that flop, 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 flop type thing. 25%, 20, 25% of the time, like, you're like, is it dead? Did I cut it? And you look and there's blood in the bucket? Okay, fine. The other 70, 75% of the time, uh, what happens is at, you know, at the end, The bird's wings go, its butthole puckers, and it does its thing, and it dies. But at that point, there's almost no blood left in it. That's the brain dying, is what that is. It, to me, this is the most peaceful way a chicken can die. Do I want somebody to do it to me? Hell no. But it's a chicken. It's part of its purpose in life. This is the most ethical, humane, most painless way. And I can tell you, you will screw it up. You will have birds that don't go right. You will occasionally think you made two great cuts. You'll put the bird in the bucket. When it starts flipping, you'll, you'll look at it and you'll realize it didn't bleed out enough and you'll have to cut again. It happens. You'll get better as you go. Be okay with it. Know that you've done your best and be okay with it. The biggest mistakes that I see when people try to kill a chicken the first time or first couple times, not pulling the feathers back and trying to cut through the feathers. The feathers make a pretty good shield. So getting the blade, even if you can't do it with your finger, Coming in like you're, like almost like you're cu cutting toward your hand. Don't cut your hand so that you get the knife under the feathers and then turning it down and then drawing it across. Okay, that's the number one thing is, is the feathers keeping you from getting a good cut. Or you have to push hard to get through the feathers so you get a reaction from the bird you otherwise would not have. The other thing is because of the mentality of slitting the throat, people cutting where the windpipe is. You don't cut the windpipe. You leave the windpipe alone. You're cutting the sides. Do this for me if you're having trouble with this right now. Take take and, and do your two fingers like you're a kid shooting cowboy guns at the head. Put your thumbs down. So now you just have your two pointer fingers out like you're pointing ahead. Take those two pointer fingers. Put them on the lobes of your ears. Go straight down to where your your neck joint your, your neck joins your head, where you can feel the jawbone in your neck. 
Come a little bit further down and push right there on the side of your neck. Right there, about halfway between your jawbone and your shoulders, on the sides of your neck, on the dead sides, right there. And you're cutting from where your neck starts to curve behind you up to the front, but not. And if you keep going, you'll feel your windpipe. So from where the, the crease in the windpipe is, back to the bend in your neck. That's the spot you're cutting. If you do that, the bird will bleed out and will have almost no reaction with a sharp knife at all until it finally dies. That's the best I can explain. That's how I slaughter a chicken. Now, the great question, to pluck or not to pluck? Okay. Um, I say, unless you have a big bird that you intend on stewing whole or roasting whole, not to pluck. Especially if it is a bird that is a coal bird that is a non-meat or non-dual-purpose bird. Buff Orpington, at adult stage, stewing hen size, or a grown-out cockerel that's time to be cold, there, there's, a, there's enough body there that, that you can make it worth plucking. For most birds, leghorns, Rhode Island reds, that type of the, the typical laying birds, either hen or rooster, just usually isn't worth plucking. Especially young cold cockerels. Let me give you some numbers here on what I learned yesterday. Last year, I had six Egyptian Faomi cockerels. They all needed to die. I killed them all the way I just described, and I plucked them by hand. It took me two hours to do six birds, to get all the feathers, all the pin feathers and all. They were terrible roasters. They were too small for roasters. Um, if we If we grilled them whole... The wings were pretty much obliterated. The end of the legs were obliterated. The thighs were okay, and the, and the breast was good. Um, the back was useless. They had pretty good fat content on them, but they were a small bird. Um, I weighed them, and they weighed between 2.3 and 2.4 pounds each. They were probably 16 weeks old. Yesterday, I slaughtered the white leghorn Uh, Rhode Island Red Cross, when I picked him up and felt the structure of his body, he was almost like I was. this is pretty much the same size as the Faomis were. What I did with him after I killed him, and this is how I take just certain parts of the chicken and skin the chicken. When you, when you have a chicken dead and you lay it on its back and you feel its breastbone, you'll feel the, the dead center breastbone where there's no meat, where it's hard. I'll stretch the skin there, and I take the knife, and I'll cut about an inch or two where I can get my fingers inside there, and I'll cut against that bone. That way I'm not cutting into any meat before I'm ready to. I know I'm cutting against hard bone, and the skin will split easily. I stick my fingers in there, and I just start pulling the skin, and I'll expose the whole... You can do it with no knife after you make that initial cut, exposing the meat of the breast. I keep pulling and pulling and pulling until I get to where I'm pulling the legs out. As you get to the legs, it's a little hard to get the leg out, so you take your knife... And you go put it upside down and cut away from yourself toward the foot. And I'll cut a good slit into each side and I'll pull the legs out and pull the skin around the thighs. I'll pull the skin all the way down to where the foot part is that you don't want to save. Oh, take that joint and cut it off with the knife on both sides. Now the, le the feet are hanging from the carcass attached to the skin. And the leg and the thighs are exposed and the breast is exposed. Then I take my knife... And I go along one side of the breastbone, and I cut the breast cutlet off one side. I set it aside, have a hose there with a nozzle, rinse it off, set it aside. Okay? 
Do the same thing on the other side. Take your two breast fillets off just like you debone a chicken breast you bought from the store. Then you take your thighs and pull them away from the body and you cut the thigh, cut it off, and you find the joint and you cut not through the bone, but you just dejoint it. You just cut through the joint. You pull that out and now you have a thigh and leg quarter and you do that on both sides. Now you have two breast cutlets and two thigh and leg quarters. And I throw the rest away on a small bird like that. It's just not worth messing with. Now, here's some real numbers. Again, remember the entire carcass of the Egyptian Faomi was 2.3 pounds. This bird, which was right at the same size of a bird, the thigh, the leg, the bones with that, and the two boneless um, breast cutlets, 1.4 pounds. Nine-tenths of a pound difference. For the entire rest of the skeleton, all of the skin, the tail, the cartilage, the connective tissue, the wing tips, all of that crap. If you wanted the wings, skinning out and pulling out the wings would be easy at this point. You could just do that and dejoint your two wings and take your top and your mid-joint of the wing. Bird that size, I don't think it's really worth it, but you can do it in a couple extra seconds. All right? So... You're going to spend 15 to 20 minutes plucking a bird to get a carcass that's nine-tenths of a pound heavier, most of which is waste. But the skin and the fat, Jack, I'll get to that in a minute. We can make broth from other things. Just saying. To me, the fact that I can clean that bird in less than five minutes, I can have it hanging up, a minute hanging upside down, slit its throat, bled out in two minutes, moved over in 30 seconds, skinned out in another 30 seconds, dejointed and in another minute, and in five to six minutes, the bird is done. From the time it was hung up till the time it is now cutlets and, and quarters. It's too easy, it's too simple, and if I'm doing one or two, if I'm going to pluck, now i got to get out of the pot, i got to heat the water up. That's a big energy and time sink. If I, Even if I own a plucker, I, I just can't see plucking birds like this. It's too fast and quick. And if you wanted the whole carcass skinned, you could skin the whole carcass. You really could. And then if you do that, skin your carcass, get all the skin off, cut your feet off, pull the wings down, cut the wingtips off, throw that whole skin away, and cut through the back, right where kind of the, 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 the hips join the back, and pull your chicken open that way and gut it from behind. It makes it a lot easier than gutting it through the butt, especially with a small bird. But I just, again, breast cutlets, final leg quarters, done. Simple, fast, and easy. Um, when you think about those numbers, you'll probably never, you'll probably never pluck a chicken like that again. I want to give you some recipes now, quick, easy recipes. The first one is really ideal for cold roosters and cold chickens that are older birds, that are tough. And this is a French recipe. It's called Coke a Vin, and Vin probably meaning wine. I'm guessing. Here's the recipe for it, and I'll put a link to this. All the other recipes, write them down or pay attention, because they're all out of my head. Um, this one, two cups of frozen pearl onions thawed. I'd say that's optional. You can use just chopped onions if you want to. Four slices of thick-cut bacon, crisp, cooked, and crumbled. One cup of sliced mushrooms. One clove of garlic minced. One teaspoon of thyme leaves. One-eighth teaspoon of black pepper. Six boneless, skinless chicken breasts, about two pounds. I'm going to say boneless, skinless. I'm going to say skinless chicken. I, you can put. I guarantee you that somebody at How Stuff Works, where this recipe is, decided boneless, skinless chicken was something cool, hippie, or whatever. I don't know because 
any chicken will, you know, the thighs and legs will definitely work in this. Unless the main, maybe the reason was they were just breasting them out when they were using these birds. I don't know, because it's an old French recipe. A half a cup of dry red wine, three quarters of a cup of chicken broth. Here's another way I know that somebody hippieized this recipe. Three quarter cup of reduced sodium chicken broth. The French on the farm did not use reduced sodium chicken broth. So, three quarters of a cup of chicken broth. One quarter cup of tomato paste. I would also say a can of tomatoes would probably work very well for this. Three tablespoons of all-purpose flour. And hot-cooked egg noodles are optional if you want noodles to go with your meal. If you want to de-paleoize it. Here's the recipe directions. This is pretty simple. Layer the onions, bacon, mushrooms, garlic, thyme, pepper, and chicken, and wine, and broth in a slow cooker. Cover, cook on low for six to eight hours. That may be more than you need. Keep an eye on it. Remove the chicken and vegetables. Cover and keep warm. Later, ladle one half cup of the cooking liquid into a small bowl. So get a, about a half a cup of, the, of the, the fluid out. Mix that liquid with the tomato paste and flour until it's smooth. So basically you're taking it out and you're mixing it in a container so you don't end up with lumps of flour or tomato paste, right? Okay, so you're going to get that mixed in there really good. Then stir it back into the slow cooker. So again, all you're doing is making a thickening slurry in a, in a reserve container so that you don't dump the flour into the crock pot, have it go into clumps and turn into clumps. Dump it back in, stir it up. Turn your slow cooker up to high for 15 minutes uh, or until it thickens. And then serve, use that sauce over the chicken and noodles if you're going to use noodles. And you could do that over... <laughs> Guys, if you're going to go off paleo, do up some rosemary roasted potatoes, oven roasted rosemary potatoes, and put that over that. It would probably be phenomenal. And I can't see that a handful of carrots and celery in that slow cooker wouldn't add to what this is. But that's a great way to use your chicken and, and make something really, really special out of something that you were just going to make soup out of. On Oh, before I go on, slow cooker is the way to go here. But if you ever want to simmer something really slow on a gas grill uh, and you have trouble with the slow simmer on a gas grill, I wanted to throw in here to use what's called a flame tamer simmer ring. I have a link to one on Amazon. They're like five bucks. And this thing just sits over the burner and then your pot sits on it. And those of you with gas grills often will find that if you turn your burner way, way down, you get really a hot boil in the center and the rest you don't get an even simmer these things work wonderful again they're only about five bucks so there's a link for that another way to slow cook um without a slow cooker dutch oven in the oven if you set the oven to 200 degrees or 212 degrees or 215 degrees it ain't gonna get no hotter and you can control that simmer beautifully in that dutch oven so that's another way to do it if you don't have a slow cooker but boy slow cooker makes this easy so now everybody says to make Soup. So I will give you Jack Spearco's chicken soup. Um, very, very easy to do. If you have skin on your chicken, because it is a chicken that you've, you've plucked, cut your chicken up into quarters or big pieces, cut the back in half, whatever, stick it all in water. Okay? You're not going to get a lot of measurements here, guys. A, about two tablespoons of kosher salt in the water, and simmer it for about two and a half hours and cook all the fat and goodness and yumminess out of the chicken. Take the chicken out in a strainer and let it strain back into the pot so you don't lose any of the yummy goodness. Go through the chicken by hand after it cools down a bit. Separate all the skin and all the cartilage and stuff like that into a pile. That goes to your doggies. They will love you for it. Don't give it all to them at once. It might make them poop 
in a big puddle on your floor because it's too much. Cut it up into small amounts. Give them about a handful of it with their food every day. It's nourishing. It's wonderful. It's great. All the bones, compost or garbage, all the meat, cut back up, back in. To this, add chopped celery. Add chopped carrots of the size that you want. Add garlic, which you should have done in the beginning too, but now add some fresh chopped garlic. I will use almost a bulb, the hell with a couple cloves, almost a full bulb of garlic into that. Um, a big handful of chopped parsley, uh, fresh chopped parsley if you can get it. Um, some thyme, some oregano, a little bit of sage, black pepper. Simmer it until the vegetables are soft and thou art done. If you want noodles with your chicken soup, I don't usually eat noodles, but occasionally I do. Let me tell you the magic way to do chicken noodle soup and not ruin everything. Into a pot, place salted water. Go into your chicken pot and ladle out two ladles of chicken broth into the pot of water that you're going to boil noodles in. Get the water hot, rolling boil, add your noodles, cook them until they are done to your liking. Strain them. Never put them in the soup. When you're going to eat, have your soup nice and hot. If your noodles are like ice cold because you've done this the day before and they've been stored in the refrigerator, sprinkle a little bit of olive oil and water on them so they don't stick together. Toss them a little bit. Warm them. Don't make them hot because then they'll get overdone. Put them in the microwave for 20 seconds or so just to warm them up so they're not completely chilled. Put some noodles in the bowl and put the hot soup on top of the noodle. This way your noodles will never explode in your chicken soup and ruin your chicken soup. All right? you, and you can do the same thing with rice. My method for cooking rice on the rare occasions I eat it. Cook it like noodles. Take a pot of water, way more water than the directions with the rice say. Get it boiling, dump your rice in, stir your rice, cook it just like it's pasta. Taste it when it's done, put it in a strainer, use cool water and rinse off most of the starch. Set it aside and use it like that. Heat it up, what have you. If you cook rice that way, and if you're doing sushi or something where you need sticky rice or whatever, you'd follow the directions. If you cook rice that way one time, you will never do rice the conventional way ever again. It's too simple and it comes out just fine. That's my chicken soup. Now, do I use chicken broth in my chicken soup? Usually. It depends on what I have to work with. I have like two or three roaster backs to make broth out of? Probably not. Otherwise, I use either my own broth or I use a product called Better Than Bullion uh, to make broth in a pinch or I use an organic chicken broth from the store. Kroger's now, it's either, no, it's Albertsons, I think. It's either Albertsons or Kroger has a brand of chicken broth called Wild Harvest Organic Chicken Broth. It costs about the same as cheap generic Swanson's. And it's organic, and it's very good, and I'll use that before I'll use the Better Than Bullion. That's my last go-to. But here's the thing. I said I would help you out with your chicken broth for chicken soup from cold chickens that you don't want to pluck. If you're raising broilers or if you're buying pastured chicken and you're parting your chickens out, instead of just making roasters, you usually end up with a back and wing tips. Reserve them till you have several. Put them in a pot of water. Make a great big pot of chicken stock and put it in Ziploc bags and freeze it. Or if you have the inclination to can it, can it. And cook it down to half, so you have basically, instead of a broth, a stock. So when you're done with the pot, if you have two gallons of um, 
of broth, slowly simmer it down to about one gallon or a gallon and a quarter. You have a concentrated stock, which will be very, very rich and really extract all the nutrients from the bones. Freeze that, and then when you add it back to a soup that you're making from a skinless, boneless chicken, you'll be good to go. The other thing for chicken broth or soup that's the magic equation that nobody uses anymore because we have stupid in our heads is the foot. The chicken foot has gelatin and it has a chemical I cannot remember that really contributes to the, the depth and the, the, the flavor of chicken soup. So you, you take the feet and you boil them in your broth and then you give them to your doggies. Just the whole foot right to the doggies happy. If you're going to do this, though, feet are kind of nasty. So you need some wastewater to do what I'm about to tell you. Even if you're not scalding, you want to do this with your feet if you're going to use them. Heat the water up to about 140, 150 degrees and dip your chicken feet in that water just until they're heated up. Pull them out, and the nails will be like a sheath over the nail. Not the whole nail, but most of the nail will just come right off. Throw that away. And then, like, the pads, like a, like a skin will peel off of the pads where the feet are dirty. So peel all of the stuff that peels off really easy off the pads, or at least clean them really, really good. Then rinse them under cool, clean water. Make sure there's no dirt in the stuff or whatever. And then use them in your stock making. And then give them to the dogs. If you're not going to make stock out of them, don't worry about all that. Just take your feet, throw them in a pot of boiling water, boil them for about 10 minutes, and let them cool and give them to your dogs. They'll be happy to eat them for you. All right. So, shredded Tex-Mex chicken. Another simple recipe for your chicken uh, that Dorothy just discovered that I'm going to work with modifying. Her method that she, she looked up is pretty much take some chicken breasts, About three pounds, throw them in a slow cooker. Dump a jar of salsa on them and a packet of taco seasoning and mix that up and cook them on high for a couple hours in a slow cooker. Then you take them out and you take two forks and you shred the chicken. So you pull the forks in the opposite direction, you make a big pile of shredded chicken. That's all she did. It was good. It was very good. I think with a better quality salsa and some of our own seasonings instead of taco seasoning, it could be better. I couldn't fault it. We ate it a variety of ways, but it's really good like for enchiladas and tacos, street tacos and things like that. Uh, my thought to improve that is either a really good quality sauce instead of like paste or, you know, do your own blend like chopped tomatoes, chopped onions, chopped garlic, chopped cilantro. Oh, cilantro went in that too. Big handful of, uh, of chopped fresh cilantro went in her recipe. Cilantro. So basically you're making your own pico or salsa to put in there and cook down out of fresh uh, vegetables would probably come out better. And then for your seasoning, chili powder, cumin, paprika, salt, pepper, instead of taco seasoning. Uh, I, so we'll try it both ways, and, and then we'll, we'll take the verdict on it. Uh, next, though, I want to talk about doing from your cold chickens that are too tough. Chicken stir-fry. Well, you can't do that. They're too tough. Bull. The key is in the cut. You take a really sharp knife, especially like what's really great is a short fish fillet knife. You take your breast and you cut on an angle across the grain of the breast. This is while the chicken's raw into very thin slices. Not paper thin, but I'm talking like quarter inch. So you want a big piece that's really thin. You marinate that in your stir fry sauce, whatever you want to do. Kinkoman, I know it's probably junk, but Kinkoman makes a garlic stir fry sauce it's really thick it's not doesn't say mar uh, it's not like a, a thin marinade it's like a it's a purple bottle i'll find it on amazon and link to it for you guys i can't find it in the stores anymore i only find it on amazon it's a bit too strong 
It, it really is a bit too over-salty, over-flavored, but it's got a great flavor. You mix that 50-50 with water, and you use just enough to cover that sliced chicken and let it marinate for about 15-20 minutes at least, but a couple hours is better, and then stew that in a stir-fry rock with stir-fry chicken and vegetables. It will be, and you can do it with the, th if you debone the thighs, cut it the same way. It will be tender. If you cut it that way, marinate it like that, maybe brine it in some salt water if you're going to make your own stir-fry, because the Kinko Man stuff's too salty to brine it with salt first, and you cook stir-fry chicken that way, it will not be tough. It just won't. I don't care if the bird's three years old. It won't, it won't be tough cut that way. Um, and I already gave you on, on my notes now, making stock and broth from broiler waste, the same thing. And you can do things like, if you're plucking chickens and you're going to roast, uh, you're going to make, you know, you're parting it out instead of doing it as a roaster, when you, par, when you cut your wings off, cut the wingtips off and put them with your backs. You're not going to eat a wingtip. Um, and we even do broth from store-bought chicken. This way, like if we buy a bunch of wings, because I love to cook chicken wings, I'll cut the wings into three parts, the, the drumette, the mid-wing, and the tip. I put all the tips in a Ziploc bag. When I get a great big gallon Ziploc bag, I take those wings, I make chicken stock out of them. They make great stock, by the way, because they have a lot of gelatin in that kind of cartilage part of the wing. They got a lot of great flavor. They got bone. They make a great stock. We take the wing tips aside and part them out in small amounts to the dogs over a few days, the, the, the bone and the wingtip at that point is just like soft. That dog has no problem eating it, no dangers eating it. And then you take the broth. So the dogs get uh, a treat. I get chicken stock, and it, essentially it's free because it's a waste part of the chicken that would have otherwise been thrown away. So what I'm just saying is you, you can make stock and broth for all the things you need stock and broth for, and that way when you do a skinless chicken, Because it wasn't worth plucking, if you need a stock or a broth, just pull out a bag of it out of your, your, your refrigerator, or your freezer, I'm sorry. Another way, if you make a really concentrated stock, so now you take, like, let's say, two gallons of liquid and we cook it down to, like, a quarter gallon, right? Put them in ice trays and freeze them in the ice cubes and put those in the Ziploc bags, and then you can just take a couple out to use for your cooking. So that's another way to use all that waste part of the chicken. I figured I'd give you just a few ways to do eggs that are a little bit different um, as we finish up because we produce so many eggs. And we, How many fried eggs are you going to eat? A lot, maybe, but I want to give you the easy over easy egg that, that Dorothy came up with. So I've always done over easy eggs by not flipping them. And the way I do that is I get a good base of bacon grease. I put my eggs that I want over easy in there. And what I do is I'm gonna do two, if I'm going to do two, I crack them into a bowl. That way, if I break a yolk, I can easily throw it away. I'm not stuck with it um, or give it to a dog or what have you or decide, okay, I'm going to just have scrambled eggs and the hell with it. But they also go in at the exact same time that way. So I put two eggs in a bowl. I get the pan, pan nice and hot, and I slowly, gently pour them into the pan. That way, they don't spread all the way out. The, the white begins to thicken, and they stay a reasonable size. And then I cook them about halfway, and when they're about halfway cooked, I tilt the pan, I take a, a tablespoon, and I ladle bacon grease over the yolks. And that gives them the over-easy thing without flipping them. And then you don't break them, and you don't overcook them. You take them out, and they're nice and runny and gooey and delicious. Well, Dorothy started making them for me, and they were yummy and gooey and delicious, and you could tell they weren't done that way, but yet they were over-easy. Well, what are you doing? Well, what she does is she just cooks them, and once they're about a quarter of the way cooked... She puts a, a lid on the pan. That's it. And it bastes, and they go over easy. The key is, 
first time you do it, you'll probably overcook them. The yolks will probably, if you like over easy runny yolks, they'll probably be a little harder than you want. Pay attention. Always use the same temperature. Eventually, you'll come up with your stove and your pan and everything else a time. At X time, put the lid on. At X time, take the lid out and get the eggs out. And if you do that, they'll come out the same way every time. I like my eggs runny but not gooey so that the centers are soft and it runs slowly, like, you know, a little fast, like more like maple syrup than water. That's how I like them perfect. Um, the next thing I have for you is uh, a carbtastic treat if you use regular bread. Uh, but you can use sprouted grain bread like I do if you want to stick to a little bit more Weston Price paleo type of thing. It's called the nested egg. This is so simple and so delicious with, again, a, 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 a wet yolk egg. You get a piece of bread and a glass. You use the glass like a cookie cutter and cut a hole in the bread. Take the hole aside. Put a little bit of butter on both sides of the bread and a little bit of butter on both sides of the little round piece of the bread that you cut out because you're going to toast them. Take the, the, the bread with the hole in it and set it in the pan and set your little round piece next to it. Crack an egg and gently drop it into the hole. So it'll start cooking sunny side up. This, if you cover it and do Dorothy's thing or try to baste it, you soak the bread. It just doesn't come out good. So what you do is you cook it and you do one, if you don't want it sunny side up, if you want it over easy, you do it the conventional way with a spatula. You turn it right when it's ready to be turned. You let it set for just about 20 seconds with the yolk side down, maybe 10's enough. Take it out and flip it back over and now you have a, an over easy egg. And at the same time, you're, you're toasting with butter on it, like a little toasted cheese, that little centerpiece of the, of the thing, and you serve that on a plate. You've got your bread, you've got your, your over-easy egg, and you've got your little round piece of toasted bread for dipping into your egg. Try it. You can thank me later. Even those of you that generally, I don't want my egg runny. Try it. Cook it a little bit longer, whatever. It's just worth breaking paleo to use regular bread once in a while. That's how awesome that is. Um... Another really great, like kind of breaking the, the mold of breakfast is egg drop soup. Here's how I'd make you a pot of egg drop soup. I would get about four cups of chicken or vegetable stock um, and about a tablespoon and a half of cornstarch and about four la large eggs and some soy sauce and some green onions. Slice your green onions up. Add your, um, your, your chicken or vegetable stock to a pot. Start to bring it up, cook your onions in that, your green onions in that while you're cooking that. And um, what you then do is uh, take out about a cup of the broth and mix your, your cornstarch in with it, just like we did with the Koa Vin, right? That way it doesn't get lumpy in there. So I've often found the best way to do cornstarch is put it in the container first and ladle a little bit over it and start mixing it with a spoon And it'll get really hard, almost like a cement. Add a little bit more. Just keep adding and mixing until you get a nice, smooth thing. And then put that back in and, and cook that. So now we're thickening the broth. And then you just take your eggs in a bowl and whisk your eggs, like you're going to make scrambled eggs, and take a fork and just drop your egg in slowly and keep stirring. And you'll end up with the strings of eggs, just like egg drop soup at the, at the, um, the Chinese restaurant. And you can add different things to egg drop soup. I've had egg drop soup with little bits of meat or mushrooms or anything you can think of in it. Um, and it really kind of a nice touch, even though I like to cook a little bit of onion into it, 
is chop up some fresh green onions, and when you put it in the bowl, put some fresh green onions on the top. I mean, that is as simple as it gets. And if you're producing a lot of eggs and you're wondering what to do, make a bowl of that once a week, especially when you get into the colder time of the year. Uh, awesome stuff. And then the last thing I'm going to say is just remember that anything can go in an omelet. Not every omelet has to be a ham and cheese omelet or a, a peppers and bacon omelet or the, the five different omelets you see at every uh, uh, restaurant. Uh, I've done omelets with spinach and feta cheese. Awesome. I've done omelets with lamb quarters and tomatoes and little bits of bacon. That's awesome. Let me give you the ultimate omelet, though, if you like salmon locks. And if you like a bagel with cream cheese and salmon and maybe a couple capers, and you're thinking that big bagel is big-time no-go for paleo, check this out. About three or four eggs, however many you need to make an omelet the size you want to make, because you might be sharing this one, Okay. Get your nice seasoned cast iron pan or nonstick pan and make and, and pour the eggs in so you get a nice thin egg omelet type egg. Let instead of trying to throw the stuff in when the eggs wet, let the egg pretty much cook to where it's almost done. On the side, have reserved slices of your salmon. Okay, so your salmon locks. So if you don't know what salmon locks are, they're like a, a, a th very thin smoked salmon. Okay. Have it all ready to go so it'll fit across your omelet perfectly. Lay down all your salmon locks in a line across the center of your omelet. And have also sliced up pieces of cream cheese. Lay your cream cheese on top of your salmon. If you want to do the caper thing, which is kind of cool, sprinkle a few capers on top of the cream cheese. Take your spatula and fold your omelet in trifold fashion over top of your salmon. And... Since the egg's almost done, you don't want it to go much more, but it will crisp and brown a little bit on the bottom, and that's good. At that point, put a cover on your pan and kill the heat, and so that way it won't overcook, but that'll let the, 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 the cream cheese warm and melt into the salmon. If you want to take it a little bit further before you fold the egg over, sprinkle some fresh dill on it, some fresh dill and capers. Try that. You'll cook that for dinner, I'm telling you right now. And... Uh, That's just, so be creative with omelet and frittata making and things like that. There's all kinds of cool stuff you can do with eggs, not just scrambled eggs, you know, not just over easy scrambled and, and the five Denny's omelets that everybody makes. Well, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope it kind of completes the circle that we started yesterday, and I hope you have a great day. Uh, I've got a great interview lined up for you tomorrow, and uh, you guys know what comes after that. Friday, Friday, Friday with the Listener Call Show. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution is you.